All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's go ahead and get started here. You'll love it. I'm wearing my hat tonight because my hair is a disaster. So there's there's probably somebody that's going to watch this online that's going to say, okay, I'm not sure if I like that too much or not. So, but yeah, we're old school when it comes to theology, but when it comes to wearing a hat in church, I'm not so old school. Um, we're going to continue from last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we've been looking at these various incidents in Israelite history. And if you remember, we're uh, calling Israelite history holy history. And it's not because, you know, there is something that is more special about this group of people than any other people. What's special about the Israelites is that God chose them. Whatever God puts his hand on, that becomes special. So you've been created in God's image. Whatever other people make you feel, whether you're able to perform in a certain way and get people's attention, you're special, right? I know, I sound like Mr. Rogers or something. All right, but the reality is having a creator and knowing that you're made in his image should automatically help you to understand, you know what, I'm special. But then you say, well, yeah, but then everybody is, so then I'm really not. No, you really are, right? Everybody has a, a, a fingerprint and no two fingerprints are alike, okay? So yeah, you're, you are unique, you are special, and that is because there is a creator. Now, if there's no creator and we all just came about as the result of chance, Who's to say? And who cares? And what matters, right? So, uh, but that's not the case. Thankfully, we are made in God's image and we are special as the result of that. So, um, the Apostle Paul has primarily been addressing this idea of idolatry, which we would treat differently today. I think our source of idolatry primarily is self, right? Do you know, do you know this term, navel-gazing? Do you know what this, this term means? It's an old term. It means I'm looking at myself. Have you ever thought about this? You can't see your face unless you look in a mirror or take a picture. But when you walk around throughout the day, you can't see your face ever. So if I'm going to look at myself, what am I going to do? Navel gazing, right? Navel as in your navel, your belly. Okay. Um, our source of navel-gazing today is this, right? And this, that's our source of, the, the primary idol today is self, self. It's not some carved idol out here, some, you know, statue of gold or silver, uh, you know, some image of some God. It's, no, it's me, that's, and then secondly, uh, and competing very closely is just material things, right? We just, all these things that we, we love and we endear ourselves to. And technology, I mean, for somebody like me especially, I have to be very careful. Um, so Apple came out with this new processor for all their devices that's really faster. And I'm like, oh, really? That's awesome. <laughs> me need no me want right so like this i bought this uh, macbook pro 
in the middle of the pandemic with my stimulus check so that I would be able to do all this stuff for the church because my other one is a 2009. And even when I was doing what I'm doing right now with you guys, with just up here on the stage, and at that time I was running Zoom, right? Which, by the way, Zoom is irritating. Have you tried Zoom? It's, there's little more irritating than Zoom. Mary's looking at me like, what is Zoom? <laughs> exactly. It's basically your, your camera on your computer is taking a picture of you and sending it to a bunch of other people and you're all on each other's screens. So it's virtual, right, group meetings. No, it's annoying group meetings is what it is, right? Somebody's got, you know, their kid running around the house and they're hollering at them, you know, and somebody else has got their pet in, you know, in their lap or whatever. And somebody else has got like some static picture and they're probably not even in front of their computer. They're probably, you know, overdoing something else, you know, whatever. It's annoying. But we did that for a while because, you know, people are scared and we're all going to die and that sort of thing. Um... But uh, I bought this computer because my old one wouldn't do that. Like I would just bring up the Bible and my notes and then on, and it would like, I would try to just advance, right? Just move up in my Bible and it would be like, <coughs> it wouldn't, you know how that is, right? It just freezes up on you and stuff. So I bought this one. This is a 2015 MacBook Pro. So this is a six-year-old computer as of now, going on seven-year-old computer. And so I was making the excuse that, well, it's kind of getting old, you know, and might go out. And so do you know how much the replacement for this computer would cost with the M1 processor? Over $2,000. But how did I justify that? Well, I'm going to use it for the church. Now, in case you think I just have $2,000 to spend and you're like, I'm not tithing anymore. That pastor just wasting money. No, I have an Apple card and my Apple card will let me finance that at 0% interest. Do you know how easy it is to excuse a purchase when you can pay for it over 24 months at 0% interest? Yeah, you know how that works, right? So, so I'm just telling you, this is how idolatry works, right? Now, I'm not saying this is an idol in line with God. But see, when I, when I want something that challenges what God wants for me, that's when I elevate it to the level of an idol, right? So uh, I sold my iPad a couple of years ago. It was an iPad Pro. It was a 12.9 inch and, and it was great. And it worked really, really well. But I just noticed that I never used it. And I also noticed that you know, although touchscreen has become very advanced, if you use a touchscreen exclusively, and those of you that just use your phone exclusively, you realize this, there are plenty of instances where you, there are certain things you just, you can't do, and it wants you to get on a regular computer to do them. I, I was like, so what I found is that I would just leave that iPad turned off for like a week or two weeks and not doing, and I have the iPad, I have the stylus, I have the the keyboard, the whole nine yards, right? So I just, I sold it online. We won't get into that deal. That was a debacle. The lady that bought it ostensibly for her son tried to uh, get me to send her money back because it was pur purportedly damaged in shipping and all this other, anyway, yeah. But 
Apple's got these new iPads with, yep, the M1 processor. I was like, oh, it's fast. Me need, me need. So I don't know what possessed me, but it was, actually I do. It's a sale. How many of you buy stuff just because it's on sale and you're like, that's a good deal, right? So it was Cyber Monday and I thought, you know what? I'm going to check this out and see if Apple's got any specials going on. Oh, yeah. So if you bought one of their new iPads with the M1 processor, you got a $100 gift card, Ooh, right? You're spending $1,000 on this iPad. You get $100 back, Ooh, right? But then, so one of the cool things about these iPads is they, uh, they have an LTE chip in them, which may, basically lets them access the internet anywhere, but you've got to pay for a plan with your provider if that's gonna happen. So they were like, hey, you know, I'm with T-Mobile. That's Sue's fault, okay? Because she got T-Mobile and I noticed that I sat next to somebody in Gloria's one day and I used to have AT&T and when I went into Gloria's, my signal just went to nothing. Like I could, I couldn't even be on my phone when I was in Gloria's. I was like, Get a, what? A, and I was paying over $200 a month for my stuff and the church's stuff on AT&T. So this lady that was sitting next to me, I, I noticed she had like three bars. And I said, can I ask you something? I said, what is, who's your provider? She said, oh, T-Mobile. Oh. So Sue had T-Mobile and she had a good experience. I was like, okay. And then I think you went to Gloria's with me one time and I was like, Sue, let's try this. And so we did like this little test as to you know how fast your, your signal was. And I was like, dude, that's great. So coupled with this, I actually moved to the mall for like a year and a half. And it's almost like the mall is geofenced. As soon as you cross over, AT&T goes to nothing. Like even if you're not inside a restaurant or a building, you have just this really, really slow connection. And so all that to say, I got T-Mobile. Well, T-Mobile on this special that Apple had was going to give you $200 back. So I was like, okay, yeah, all right, but I spent 1100 on this iPad, but, 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 I'm gonna be able to finance it over two years, but, 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 I'm also gonna get $300 back. So foolish me, I went, order. It's just too easy, right? And then the next day, conviction. <laughs> and so I tried to cancel the order. Well, Apple doesn't make it easy. It used to be you could just go to your purchase, find it, and it would say cancel and cancel. Couldn't find it. So I went online to find out and they said, here's the link. And it just took me right back to the same screen that has no cancel. So I had to call somebody at Apple to cancel. I get at the most atypical Apple representative you can imagine. I think, I, I, he might've said his name when he first answered, but I know they sent a survey back. You know how you, you talk to somebody and they send a survey back. How was your waitress at the mill house? You know, and you're like, Autumn was awesome. Five stars. I love Blanca. She's my favorite waitress. Five stars, right? This guy's name was Bart. Guess where he's from? That's right, Garland. And he talked like this. Bart from Garland. He said, you know, he said, 
I was born in a little town in 1959 called Garland, Texas. And I said, well, that's where I'm from. He goes, I know. <laughs> anyway, he canceled the order for me, and so it was great. All right, so that's a long story about idolatry. Um, <laughs> you have your own sources of idolatry. You know, it can be, a, it can be you know, jewelry or clothes or cars or you name it, right? So we can identify with what Paul is trying to do in Corinth. He's trying to help them not only shun idolatry, but not be involved in any sort of uh, appearance of evil, as uh, one translation has it uh, in uh, Ephesians. There's a, there's a verse in Ephesians, I think it's 5, chapter 5, it says, shun every appearance of evil. So sometimes that appearance of evil is about not offending other people and causing them to stumble. So you may not have a bit of a problem with whatever it is, okay? But somebody else may have a problem with it. Now, I've, I've used alcohol as an example on a number of occasions. Somebody that's an alcoholic doesn't need to be going into a restaurant or a bar or whatever where alcohol is prevalent because it's a constant temptation. Further, they don't need to be involved with someone else in a situation where the other person is just like really unconcerned about them and is drinking in front of them or it's a temptation, right? So whatever the, the, you know, the source of, of offense is, the Apostle Paul is saying, don't do it. You don't need to be the cause for someone else to stumble, whatever their stumble is. So again, whatever it is may not be a problem for you, but if it's a problem for somebody else, that doesn't mean you need to guide your entire life by that, but it does mean that you need to watch your P's and Q's while you're around that person because you don't want to be a source of stumbling for them, right? So the Apostle Paul goes into this series of examples from the history of Israel, from holy history, right? So you could draw analogies from the history of any nation, Greece, Rome, Persia, right, Egypt, our nation, you could draw examples, analogies, right? But this is holy history, so God is involved with Israel in a way that he's never been involved with any other group of people in history. He intervened in their history, and he carried them along. And the things that they went through become types for us. As I said last week, uh, the scripture says uh, that these things... Verse 6, this is 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 6. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, he's focused on Israel in the wilderness wanderings from the time they were delivered from Egyptian bondage until the time they came to the edge of the land of Canaan and then were turned back and had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So he's focused on that time period. He said, these things that happened to them in that wilderness period are examples for us. And as I said last week, the term that is used in Greek is the word tupos, and we get our word in English type from that. These are types, right? Patterns. It's a paradigm for us. 
So you look at this that has happened, and whereas Sue was helping you guys understand last week that different people have different paradigms, different ways of looking at life, this is a standard paradigm. This is an example. This is something that is a source for everyone to go to and look at and compare themselves with. Not, this is my truth, this is my paradigm. That No, no, no. This is Israel, and this is how God interacted with them. And so now we look at that, and you will be able to, if you pay attention and pray, you will be able to identify yourself in this example. You will be able to apply that to your own situation, right? All right, so I'm going to go, I'm going to back up to the verses from last week, and then I'm going to jump ahead. Um, this is 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and following. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Remember, this is from the people at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses had been up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and they said, we don't know where this guy is you know, gone, and we don't know whether he's going to come back. So they tried to get, well, they didn't try. They successfully got Aaron to create a calf idol for them that they were saying, this is, this is your God, Israel. This is who's going to lead you back to Egypt. The calf idol was going to lead them back to bondage. And so we went into that story last week and how Moses did come to the foot of the mountain through the tablets of the covenant down and uh, symbolic of the Israelites breaking the covenant. And um, he interceded for them, he intervened for them and kept God from destroying them, but that didn't keep them from destroying themselves. As we saw earlier uh, in this very chapter, it says they were over, they were overcome, they were overwhelmed in the wilderness, right? Um, because they just continued to sin. Verse seven, do not be idolaters, or excuse me, verse eight, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them, some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We're gonna look at that story today. We must not put Christ to the test of some, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. We, we mentioned these last week, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna look at them in a little more detail tonight. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So he bookends these four stories with the same statement. These things happen to them as examples for us. And then he adds in verse 11, upon whom the end of the ages has come. Now, I've said this many times, but I'll mention it in passing here. Um, there are those who really want to take the Bible literally, and they want to see the earth as being 6,000 years old. And if that is the case, then we are 3,000 or more years, 3,500 years from those examples and we are 2,000 years away from Jesus. So if you have a 6,000-year-old earth, it doesn't seem like we're at the end of the ages, right? This is just good. It seems like that's just a huge period of time. However, if, as scientists believe, the earth is somewhere in the vicinity of 4.3 billion years, 2,000 years is nothing. That's, that's that. We're at the end of the ages, right? So if the universe is 13.73 billion years old, as scientists believe, and the earth is 4.3 or 4.5, somewhere in that vicinity, then 
this little brief period of human history is nothing. And we're at the end of that, even if the last 2,000 years were spoken of as the end, it's still a, just an incredibly small period of time when you consider that in, entire time frame that resulted in the universe coming into existence and the earth coming into existence and developing and so forth. So I don't have a problem with these statements um, because uh, I can bring together both science and the scripture and I can see how that all works out, right? All right, so let's back up. Um, well, let me read these other two verses. Verse 12 and 13. I hope, I think we'll get to these today. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, right? So let's back up. Um, we talked about uh, the, uh, the statement in verse seven, uh, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play as the time at the foot of Mount Sinai. Then in verse eight, he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. So wh where, where is this located? Uh, this is still in the wilderness wandering. The people were living in the region of Moab in a place called Shittim. And the passage um, which reports this incident is found in Numbers 25. So you can write that down if you want to look it up. If you don't have a study Bible already and you can look up the details, I'm going to give you the overview here. We're told, quote, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. So this would presumably be uh, Baal and his consort Ashtoreth. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor. So once again, God shows his outrage by taking the lives of between 23 and 24,000 people. Um, I did mention this last week, but this was actually in the story of Balak and Balaam, right? Um, Balaam of Balaam's donkey fame. Um, Balaam was a prophet and Balak was the king of Moab, and he wanted to get the prophet to come and curse Israel. And Balaam said, I can't do anything other than what the, God, what the Lord tells me to do. Balaam had bad motives. And so at one point, God tried to stop him from going with Balak's, Balak's emissaries. And he's riding his donkey. And the donkey, the donkey sees what the prophet can't see. He sees a, an angel standing in the roadway with a sword drawn. And so the donkey just stops. Well, Balaam is so angry, he starts beating his donkey. And then the donkey just folds to the ground under him. And then God opens the, this is, this is a crazy story. I love it. God opens the donkey's mouth and the donkey says, why are you beating me? <laughs> now, you would think like, yeah, if my horse or my donkey started talking to me, I would be like, whoa. But no, he just talks back to it and he says, because these three times you've embarrassed me and blah, 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 blah. And then the Lord opens the, the prophet's eyes and he sees this angel standing there and he's like, whoops, right? So the angel says, you can go, but only do what I tell you to do and say what I tell you today. So there's this underlying motive that's there where Balaam is doing what the Lord is telling him, 
but he wants that profit, right, from that. So he goes, he blesses Israel everywhere he turns, and King Balak is just angry and sends him on his way. But see, then we come to this story, and, uh, and this is still in the same region. Um, we come to this story in Numbers chapter 25, and we find that the Israelites are tempted by these local fertility gods to enter into ritual prostitution. I mean, it's disgusting, but this is what they did. No more disgusting than anything that goes on in this country. So, um, but there were people that were professional prostitutes, but it wasn't for the purpose of money. It was their idea of worship. And so we find out later that it was Balaam who put Balak up to this. He said, you can't get me to say what the Lord isn't going to have me say. But let me tell you how this all works. If you get these people into the right situation, you can get them to sin against God with idolatry. Just use sexual immorality as a temptation. Uh-huh. And that's exactly what happened. Well, this application for the Corinthians would be obvious. Um, eating meat sacrificed to idols, if eaten in a ceremony or celebration of a false god, dishonors and displeases the real god. Eating the Lord's Supper celebrates his death and resurrection and binds us to our Lord and to one another. We call it communion for this reason. Eating meat in an idol's temple or when associated in any way with the God in the mind of the partaker and or the observers may be seen as a celebration or participation in the service of that false God. Primarily in this verse, though, the idea of sexual immorality is brought out. So if you remember back, if you've been here, uh, when I talked about Corinth, um, then you have heard me say, and if not, you'll hear now, that there were prostitutes for the goddess Aphrodite that came down from her temple every night to spread the distorted sexual gospel of the goddess of love. Remember, Aphrodite in Roman mythology, Greek mythology, is the goddess of love. So, would a new Corinthian believer justify a tryst with a temple prostitute by telling himself and others that Aphrodite is, after all, not a real, you know, God, right? Um, yeah, that could be an excuse for somebody to enter into a perverse sexual situation, right? So even eating meat sacrificed to a god or goddess who was worshipped sexually gave tacit approval to such a practice. So think about this. Maybe this person did not enter into a sexual relationship with a temple prostitute from the goddess Aphrodite, but they ate meat that was sacrificed to her at her temple. So what would that be saying to a worshiper? That this practice is okay, but it's not okay. Do you see why we need to be careful in our relationships with other people? I'm not by any means saying divorce yourself from relationships to people who are in the world. But I am saying we need to be careful what we do and how we involve ourselves with those people because we may be giving tacit approval to their immoral lifestyles. And so we need to be very clear without being condemnatory about where we stand. 
And we need to not put ourselves in positions where we compromise and would seem to approve of what they're doing. So you need to ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom in such situations. Say, I'll give you an example in the history of this church. Um, when we started out, everybody was the age of these three people sitting over here, okay? Literally, everybody in my church was your age. There were a few of us, the oldest people in my church at that point in time, were at the ripe old age of 40, all right? But everybody else was 16 to 24. Well, you know, welcome to the raging hormone era, okay? And so it's, you know, constantly trying to preach a gospel of purity and let's follow God's model and God's plan for our lives and not what the culture has to say. And things have moved on from there to an even further extreme, right? Um, and so I had, I remember I had a young man, one of many, I could give you, I could give you so many stories. I'm just going to use one. Um, and this fellow was, uh, he was, he was talented. He was a musician, played the guitar. Um, and we had lots of young people who would come up and, and lead worship, you know, or help with the worship team. And, uh, this young man was, you know, came to our church and he was just like, oh man, we call ourselves Zion back then. And he loved the name and he loved the church and all these sorts of things. And, uh, but he was living with his girlfriend and that's, you know, it was very acceptable back then. It's perhaps even more acceptable now, but it's no more acceptable from the perspective of scripture. Now, when I say living with, I don't mean they were in a giant house and in two separate rooms and there's 15 roommates. I'm talking about they were living like a married couple. And he just figured because we were so accepting, particularly me was so accepting of people that that automatically implied that I was accepting of that lifestyle. And no, that's not what I mean by that. And so as I do, I just preach the word. I don't have to, well, I know that he's living with his girlfriend. I need to find a verse right here. There it is, there it is. And you need to know, you pervert. You know, all I gotta do is just preach the word and it's just gonna, it's gonna come to that. Sooner or later, it's gonna come to that, right? Well, further, you know, I just, I told him, I won't say, it wouldn't matter if I use his name. We'll just, we'll just use the, the letter K. I said, K, you know, that's not right. That's not, that's not the biblical pattern. That's not what scripture teaches. So, I mean, we're talking within a month. He was like, you know, from our church's best friend to my mortal enemy. See, in the end, people just want you to tell them what they want to hear. Mm -hmm. That's what it amounts to. They just want you to tell them what they want to hear, right? Not you guys, obviously. You wouldn't be sitting here listening to me right now if that were true, right? Okay. Yeah, that's where we that's where we are. So, um, what I'm saying is that this this eating meat that came from Aphrodite's temple would be like that. It would be like tacit approval, right? So it's it's you going out with a group of friends, and what kind of music are they listening to in the car? perverted, perverted, perverted. And you're going to a place where everybody's getting high. You're like, no, 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 I'm good. I'm not. I just, uh, you know. But they're taking this as tacit approval. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right? So there's this line we walk 
between appearing to be judgmental or condemnatory and appearing to be accepting of behavior and lifestyle that is not in keeping with our Christian faith, right? So this is why we get into the Word and we, we read the Word, okay? Um, now, also, if there were any uh, Gnosticism or Neoplatonism in the culture of Corinth, which is likely, people could believe that what one does with the body is just insignificant since matter is evil anyway. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. It's just going to die anyway, and then I'm going to go to heaven. And there are people that perhaps they've come up in a denomination or an environment where they just think, you know, grace is important. It's central, right? Uh, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But people can take advantage of grace and just think that that means, well, you know what? I can just do whatever I want to do, and then I'm going to go to heaven because Jesus died for all my sins. But you're really not accepting the gravity of Jesus' death for your sins if you can so easily go on in sin willfully, right? Um, a genuine believer, a genuine Christian, somebody who's inhabited by the Holy Spirit is going to be convicted when they walk down that path. If you can just walk down that path and do sexually immoral stuff, do violence, whatever, and not feel anything about it. I'm just honest. I don't think you're saved because the Holy Spirit is going to convict you. Now, that doesn't mean that, especially in a culture like ours, that there are not many um, opportunities to stumble, many instances where we are tempted. And we may give in to that temptation, but the, the reality is the Holy Spirit is going to convict you and he's going to drag you back, sometimes kicking and screaming, but drag you back and you're going to want to give that up, right? And give yourself back over to the Lord, not give yourself over to sin. Um, so for us, the application could be don't make a God of sex, So the application to this particular story. Too many, to too many people, um, sex is worship. Uh, it's the substitute for worship. When we consider how important sex or even the thought or the prospect of it is in our culture, it is obvious that worship is what is taking place. Remember, worship is giving ultimate value to something. We desire intimacy. We want to give ourselves to someone. That's worship. Sex may be a means of accomplishing that. However, outside God's design and purpose, sex is just an act. There's little, if anything, beyond it. Having sex with someone doesn't guarantee a relationship with them, and it, uh, and it does not necessarily equate to real intimacy. In fact, sex is often ironic, right? It promises this intimacy, but, and it even simulates it for a period of time, a brief period of time, but it actually produces distance between people who are uncommitted to one another to begin with. Sex often ruins relationships. You don't need me to harp on that, all right? The reality is you've probably either experienced that or know multiple people who have experienced that. Outside God's design, sex is wrong, and it results in loneliness and, a lot, and loss and a lot of pain. In our day, sex has also become the focus of identity for many, especially younger people. There is so much confusion and disordered practice, and it is being propagated even among children. As believers, in, and by the way, Leave kids alone. 
Stop. Leave them alone. The surest sign to sexual dysfunction in the future of a child is precocious involvement in sex. Kids do not need to be involved in this in any way. You need to be very careful about when and how you discuss this issue with kids because involving them in a precocious, even sexual discussion, suggestive, can be detrimental. They're not ready for this, man. All right? There's this tendency among adults to just forget how you were wired back then, how you thought back then. Kids do not think the same as you do. They don't. Their bodies are not where our bodies are. And so when I see instances in our culture where we're offering children puberty blockers and where we're exposing children to, um, you know, uh, cross-dressing folk, um, it's disturbing. Leave, just, can you just leave them alone? Like, sir, can you let them have just the, a bit of innocence in their lives? And, you know, when they get old enough to figure this out, fine, you can have that debate all you want to have, and I'm going to stand with the Scripture. But what I'm saying is, anybody on the left or on the right, pro-LGBTQ or not, leave these kids alone. We're absolutely messing up a generation or multiple generations. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to come back. All these politicians that are promoting this garbage now, these kids that are having to deal with this and are being scarred by this are going to turn back around and they're going to be pointing the finger and blaming, right? Kids can be led into all sorts of situations that they don't really want because there's a very persuasive and therefore powerful adult that is convincing them, right? But what happens? This is why you have these instances where, you know, a kid was exposed to these precocious sexual situations, maybe even an abusive sexual situation. Certainly, if it's a sexual situation at all with someone older, it is definitely molestation and abuse. And they didn't say anything at the time. They were too afraid to or they were too confused. But what happens when they get older? They feel the hurt. And they realize something was wrong. And then they turn around and point the finger. Right? Yeah. The problem now is that this is being normalized. And... There is, there is a softening of our resolve to protect our children from these things, right? All right, diatribe, sorry, but I'm getting tired of hearing some of these things and seeing some of these things happen. Um, yeah. Then next, he says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. These are two stories. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So, um, let's, we'll take these together, but you'll see how uh, they are actually separate stories. Um, these are incidents still from the wilderness wandering. The first one where he says uh, they were destroyed by serpents is found in Numbers 21, and it describes a time when God sent serpents among the people to bite them in response to their impatience and blasphemy. They spoke against both God and Moses. 
They showed contempt for God's gift of manna, the food from heaven, saying, we loathe this worthless food. I covered this a little bit last week. When God sent fiery snakes among the people, they cried out and cried out to Moses, admitting that they had sinned and asked him to intercede for them. Moses prayed for them that God, uh, for them, and God told him, that is told Moses, to make a bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole in the midst of the camp. Whenever one of the, the bitten Israelites looked on the serpent in faith, that God would heal them, they were made well. Paul states that they were putting Christ to the test even though they did not yet know that God was speaking to them through his son. In John 3, Jesus uses this as an analogy of his death on the cross. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. That's uh, John 3, 14. As the people looked to the serpent and trusted that God would heal them, so all will be saved who look in faith to Christ on the cross as God's remedy for sin. Think about this. Jesus became our sin. He who knew no sin became our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we look upon him with the eyes of faith, the one who took our sin upon himself, he takes away our sin. When the Israelites looked upon this serpent, which was what was biting them, it took away their disease, right? So it's a, it's a beautiful illustration. Um, so the example here for them and for us is don't test God with your impatience. To God, a thousand years or as a day gone by, uh, his seeming slowness has a purpose. So we can become impatient in traffic impatient, waiting for, you know, something to change in our lives, waiting for someone to change in our lives. But the reality is uh, time gives people an opportunity to change. The Lord is giving us an opportunity to change. So we may be impatient, but God, it's not even really accurate to say God is waiting because God is separated from time. God doesn't have to wait, but there's a process and you have to go through the process. And you may not like going through the process. So Autumn and I had braces on at the same time. Was not always a pleasant process, right? Just all sorts of issues with wearing braces. It's just annoying. But now look. I know. I haven't had a smile like this since I was seven years old. As soon as I got my big teeth in, they all started crowding each other. It was bad. If y'all remember me, I couldn't do this before. I was embarrassed. I'm not now. We're not embarrassed anymore, are we? It was a process though, wasn't it? It's a process. It took two and a half years for me. There are other people, it takes even longer, right? You know, so, you know, I mean, you know, I'm not telling you you need to start now, but come January, we all might want to start getting in shape again lose a little of this and gain a little of that and whatever. And it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. You have to go through the process of change, of transformation, right? Um, listen to what it says in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient toward you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's the point of the process. Repentance, change. The second application for us is this. So the first is don't be a patient, right? Um, because uh, 
it is a process, so don't test God with impatience. And then the second application is don't become thankless and look back with yearning for the things you used to indulge in while in the world. Those things are worthless and result in suffering and death. The Israelites were looking back at Egypt with longing. They were slaves. They were slaves. And they were crying out at that time because they were in this oppressive bondage. But now they've suddenly forgot all the bad stuff. And they're just, oh, we remember being by the Nile River and the leeks and onions and the meat and all the beautiful things we had. But you were slaves. Yeah, but the food was great. You know? <laughs> It's like, you know, this is the person that gets drunk and throws up for three hours and has a headache the entirety of the next day. And then next weekend when their friends invite them out, they're like, oh, sure, let's go. Because <laughs> I love that feeling. Which feeling do you love? You love that up, up, up feeling or that, ah, relax, whatever. Or did you like the vomit that you were just in? Right? Did you like the headache? I remember one of my, I've got a million teenager stories from back in those days. I remember one of my teenagers, and this is from the early days of the church, uh, again. And uh, I think it was uh, the 21st birthday. Oh. oh, yeah. Cautionary tale. Cautionary tale. <laughs> and he way overdid it. Woke up the next morning in a bathtub covered in vomit. Like whoever it was at his house had like just because he was just throwing up, just moved him to the bathtub. But eventually you're just throwing up so many times. It's like, here, just get in the tub. We'll, we'll hose you down later, right? How horrible and how easily we forget, right? We're like a dog that goes back to its vomit, right? Like the pig that goes back to the mud hole once again. So we can't be thankless looking back to those old days as though they were wonderful times. The old lifestyles of sin, drugs, sexual immorality, taking God's money and time back by turning away from the church. Um, you know, that happens all the time. You know, the church is trying to lead you one direction if you're in a Bible preaching church and this group of people out here are trying to lead you in another direction, so you just give up on church, right? And so you lose out on this fellowship because you're, you joined yourself to this fellowship. The final example is about grumbling, which the people did plenty of in the desert. Last week, I, I gave you that example uh, of the, uh, the word murmur, and we all said murmur, 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 and so you got the idea, right? Grumble, 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 murmur, murmur, murmur. Um, they complained against Aaron and Moses because they were hungry and they longed for the flesh pots of Egypt. Moses warned them that they were really complaining against the Lord. This is Exodus 16. So this is not all linear. The Apostle Paul is jumping around in the, the history of their wandering in the wilderness. Um, and as I mentioned last week, the same word translated murmur or grumble is used when the Israelites refused to enter the promised land. All right, so in spite of this, the Israelites were, uh, you know, constantly turning back to that grumbling and that murmuring. And they were indeed overthrown in the desert ultimately, as Paul states in 10.5. Even though Moses interceded for them on several occasions, they were destroyed by their own insolence and unbelief. And as I have been 
reminding you throughout this time, every adult over the age of 20 dropped dead during the 40 years of wandering in the desert. The children whom their parents accused God and Moses of bringing into the desert to kill, these God brought into the promised land. So the example to Corinth would have been obvious. There was infighting among the people, as we saw in chapter 3. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. There was mistrust toward Paul, the seeds of which were sown by false teachers. There was pride evident in their exercise and evaluation of spiritual gifts, which may have brought about a similar attitude toward spiritual authority as the one uh, the Israelites had in the wilderness toward uh, um, Korah and his clan. Um, so they wanted to be elevated to a position of status, and this was already the case, but they were competing with one another and walking over one another. Um, and you see this in churches today. Um, so a church like ours has a congregational form of government, um, but we don't have monthly business meetings like churches that I came out of did. Anybody come out of a church that had monthly business meetings? No, but I know of The monthly meeting where they just, you know, argue with each, with each, with each other and fight and so forth. You're blessed or, I don't know, hopefully not cursed, by having the same pastor who started the church as the head of the church. So we just don't have that. But I've been in churches where we do have that. I, I really do seek to listen to everybody and entertain those ideas and make decisions that I really believe the Lord has led us to. Um, but when everybody has their own ideas and everybody wants to be heard, and we're all sort of just rising up and competing with one another, then we have this, this same infighting problem that the Corinthians had. So the example of them is the same for us. We're citizens of the kingdom. We're members of Christ's body on earth. We're called saints. The priesthood of the believer is real. You're a priest before God. You don't have to come to me. Uh, I'll, I'll pray for you. Miss Mary will pray for you, right? Other people in this room will pray for you. But that doesn't mean that I'm more special than you. You have a relationship with Jesus if you've chosen to have faith. You can pray to him. That doesn't mean you shouldn't get other people to pray for you, get in a circle of prayer and so forth. But it also doesn't mean that I have greater standing with God or a higher status with God than you're capable of ha having just by putting faith in him, right? Um, so, um, all of these events in holy history are analogies and examples for us upon whom the end of the ages has come. Even after more than 2,000 years, we're walking along the boundary of the first and the coming of the new creation. This is what uh, Marion Swords, who has written a commentary in the Understanding the Bible series, uh, says, he says, Paul perceives that humanity is located at a time between the cross and the coming of Christ. Now, this is commenting on the statement um, that we are those on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul perceives that humanity is located at a time between the cross and the coming of Christ when the old and the new ages are mingled in this interim. The old is already dying and the new is already being born. Though the old has not yet passed away and the new has not yet fully arrived. We're in a time of 
adolescence, if you will. Adolescent means to be on the way. When you're an adolescent, you're not a child anymore, but you're not yet an adult. You're in that in-between period. You're on the way. And we're really, that's where we are, okay? I'll conclude with these two verses that are very important. Uh, I'm not going to read my notes here. Therefore, I may come back and comment on these again next week because uh, my notes have more detail. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. What is this? This is cautioning us against presumption, right? Oh, you know, I, I was born in the church. I was raised in the church. I know those things. I, I got it. I got it. I got it. Knowing is not the same as doing. Jesus said, you know these things. You're blessed. Nope. You know these things. You'll be blessed if you do them. Right? So if I think I stand, I need to be careful because that's the point when I may fall. I've used this example many times in the history of my ministry. I used to take students skiing every year, uh, been to every major ski resort in Colorado. And I would always challenge myself because I was still pretty young back in the day, uh, in my 30s. And, um, you know, I was challenging myself to harder and harder and harder runs, right? You start out with greens and then you go to blues and then you go to blacks and then you go to double blacks and double blacks are so hard, they're not even fun. <laughs> it's just a challenge because you're like, I made it and I didn't die because it's just, they're ridiculous. I mean, the run is like this. Giant rocks everywhere, trees in the way. You're just like, you're just trying to survive without falling too many times. And the, the other thing is, if you fall on a double black, you may not stop falling for a while, right? Because they're so steep, you just keep falling. And then you have to pray that somebody will get your ski poles and your skis and your hat and your gloves, which are scattered all the way up the hill. In fact, I watched one... <laughs> I'm sorry. If he were here, he might laugh with me. Maybe not. Um, but I, I would always challenge others of our uh, group to go on these more difficult runs with me. I would call it their baptism of fire. So I would always take somebody who had never been on a black before. And I was like, nah, come on, go with me. That's, I took uh, Craig. Pastor Craig on one of those baptisms of fire. And honestly... I don't think Craig has skied since then. <laughs> he started snowboarding after that, and I don't think he's skied since then. He's very smart. He, <laughs> we won't go into that one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about this other young man. Uh, well, young man. He was one of our volunteers. He's actually older than me. And I took him with me on this. It was a black, but it was... I mean, blacks can be pretty hard, but it was, it was a fairly steep black. And I took him with me. And I got all the way down. And I was waiting at the bottom and I could see, and I'm not kidding. He started falling about midway down the mountain and literally fell and slid all the way, the rest of the way. Didn't break anything, but buddy, he was like snow and whatever everywhere. And yeah, he didn't want to do that anymore either. Um, but the reason I bring this story up in conjunction with this verse is oftentimes I would really be concentrating when a run was super hard. First of all, I didn't want to get hurt. Secondly, I was challenging myself to make it. So I'm focused and I'm concentrating. And then I'd get to the bottom. You know, so the, you know, the runs like this and I'd get to the bottom and it would, you know, the, the slope would, would ease up. And, you know, you'd just be cruising along. 
Now, typically, at the bottom is where the, the, uh, the, the lifts are, right? So everybody is on the lift, and they're riding, and they're looking down at everybody that's skiing below them. And you've just come down, or I've just come down off of this really ridiculously hard run. And I'm like, ah, oh, good. Didn't fall. fall. And then fall. just did a double black and did not fall came down transitioned on a blue and did not fall now i'm on a green underneath the lifts and what do i do i fall like i've just learned how to ski leave the kids alone <laughs> leave the kids alone but that's you know you're not paying attention anymore and that's when you get hit right and that's when you can get hurt this is really about temptation you may be up for temptation in certain situations and you're careful, but it's when you let your guard down, that's when you get hit, right? So we're going to look at this other verse in more detail next week, but I'm going to read it now because you'll see how it ties in. No temptation has overtaken you. That assumes that a temptation has and or will overtake you at a certain point in time. That is not common to man. That is common to humans. God is faithful See, God is faithful. Even when you're unfaithful, God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, beyond what you are capable of bearing up under. But will with the temptation provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. So you can trust that God will sustain you through temptation as long as you're paying attention to the Lord. Amen? All right, those of you that are online, thank you for joining us.